Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we help clinicians towards uh, applying a person-centered approach to their clinical practice. So if you're interested, we have our live course dates all up on our website at tkex.org and feel free to join our Facebook discussion group for more. I'm excited today to introduce Sabrina Koenigs and Peter Stilwell, two prominent researchers in the pain space, both building, questioning and progressing our growing understanding of pain. So thank you both for joining us. And I think we are successfully joining forces from three continents right here, right now. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, for, uh, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So the, the first question, if I could ask, and I might have to do a, a, a Peter first, then Sabrina or vice versa, but feel free to interrupt each other as I'm sure you would have in many clinical interactions and, and discussions over research, but whoever would like to start first, who are you and what's your why? I see Sabrina pointing at me. Um, yeah, <laughs> I really appreciate the invite. Um, so yeah, my name is Peter Stilwell. I'm a Canadian postdoc researcher at McGill University. Um, so my work mostly focuses on pain and, and suffering, uh, mostly theoretical and, and qualitative work. Um, I guess, yeah, some more background. Like I spent most of my life skateboarding in the streets. So on the handrails and stairs and this resulted in a variety of, of injuries and experiences with pain. Um, I also have a clinical background working with people living with pain. And I guess through these personal and clinical experiences, I, I just saw a lot of inadequacies in, in pain management and room for improvement and figured I'd, I'd make a, a bigger impact uh, through, through being a researcher and uh, I guess like a pain advocate. So that's a little bit about me and, and why I do the work I do. Sabrina. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm a philosopher of mind and philosopher of science. Uh, I'm originally from Germany, but right now I'm at the Free University in Amsterdam, where I work as an assistant professor. And uh, my why? So why am I researching pain? I think kind of after my master, I just started to, like where I worked a lot on emotions, I started to get interested a little bit more in pain. Um, I think especially because on the surface, this looks so simple to a certain degree. We all kind of know pain in everyday life. And in some textbooks, you find like, oh, pain is this one thing, you know, that related to tissue damage. And it's why it's so much easier than emotions. Uh, at least that's when and at the beginning of pain research in philosophy, I had often the impression that it was the case. And when I just started to do my PhD, I had the feeling in philosophy, the topic of pain just boomed and people were like really interested in it. And reading more and more, I think I just got so fascinated by it and puzzled and frustrated all at the same time because I had the feeling it's so complex and it's so interesting and it's messy and I don't know this is what philosophers love like if things are, are difficult to grasp and you you really can like continue to work on it and um, I think a lot of people after their PhD are like okay I solved this problem now I'm going to work on something else and I just like I, I, I'm not there yet there's just too many things that are still to be done on pain and um at some point, I also really wanted to um, get my ideas or my philosophy out of just being of interest for other philosophers, but really to have these kind of philosophical ideas do something in the world. And I was lucky enough to meet uh, Peter at a conference where we just um, started to discuss. And I recognized that we can really learn a lot from each other. So philosophers can learn a lot from clinical debates, from the perspectives there. Um, I was allowed to get into conversation with patients and patient advocates. 
And on the other hand, I also learned what we philosophers can contribute. And I think all of this together just kept me excited to do the kind of work that we started a couple of years ago. So fascinating, the, the meeting of the two worlds and how you've both collaborated and, and combined. And um, the, there's a lot that we can all learn from each other. And that multidisciplinary approach is so important and needed in something so complex like pain. It's, a, it's amazing. Did, did you both uh, see yourselves kind of collaborating together? I, I know that there's lots of silos even in our clinical space. And what's been your experience like with the collaboration between different fields so far, have there been uh, kind of people agreeing and being jumping to the opportunity and others kind of keeping in their silos and maybe perhaps not wanting to go venture out into the, the unknown? Curious. Yeah, for me, it's, I, th I guess I'm just like a bit different, I think. Like I I've thought about this, people have asked me about this lately and I'm like, I've never not done interdisciplinary work. Um, so oh, oh, I, I've never worked in a silo. So I don't know anything different. So I'm often seeking out these opportunities to work with different healthcare pr professionals, different researchers, uh, uh, philosophers. Um, so so it, it's normal to me, um, but I never had worked with a, a, like, a, a, like just a full-on philosopher like Sabrina before. So that was a, a new opportunity and, and so getting on the same page and discussing terminology and like navigating all that stuff early on was was super fun and I think that's often a barrier to these types of collaborations it's like what do you mean what do you mean by that term or or, or what's the background here like what's your understanding of this and like it was so beneficial to me mutually beneficial I think um, to have that that engagement and so we continue to work together and and, and Sabrina tolerates me and I appreciate that <laughs> Yeah, I, I would fully agree. I think it was so fruitful to have these kind of debates. But the, the main thing that's often uh, the first step that has to be done is to find a common language, to have these communication aspects, to try to find out what are the terms we're talking about. And I think for myself, it's also I have projects which are full-blown philosophy, metaphysics, where I'm quite aware of whatever the results of that is going to be, it most likely will have no clinical application whatsoever. And that's perfectly fine. That's like one project I like to do. And on the other hand, when I do projects where I think like he should really be some form of outreach, and this really includes making the effort to take the perspective of the other person, of um, the other discipline, and also sometimes to make compromises and like, okay, um, we philosophers love our taxonomies and our like very clear conceptualizations and fine-grained distinctions and everything. But sometimes this is just not useful because it makes it too difficult to understand for someone who wants to do something with it. So then it's my compromise to, okay, then let's see which of these conceptualizations actually have uh, translate into practice or really have consequences if we go with one or the other and I think this is the important thing to be open for this communication process um, to continue finding out which perspectives go together and where where accessibility um, and so to say empirical adequacy and conceptual clarity how these things can actually work together. Absolutely so finding that common language that we can all be talking about the same things and and overall, I can hear the, I can sense the the passion and also the sense of advocacy for patients so that patients out there experiencing pain, especially persisting pain, can can benefit from all this work. So for the, the listeners out there, and most of them are in musculoskeletal pain spaces and, and private practice, what are some of the key messages that you'd hope 
they would start taking away from some of your work with uh, an inactive approach and affordance-based models. And I expect a 30-second answer, no, no longer. That was, that was joking. <laughs> you sometimes can't pick out the sarcasm. But maybe a starting point even for, for clinicians who are starting uh, introducing themselves into these some of these concepts. Yeah, maybe I can say something very short in the beginning. I think it might at the beginning just look so overwhelming when talking about an activism and a form-based model. Um, both of these come from long traditions. They have different kinds of ways in which they have been interpreted. So there's not the inactive theory, the affordance-based theory or ecological, psychological um, approach to it. So um, I think that in the beginning, there might be some rather simpler key message to take away and to then build on and go into the details. And I think then it's really also worth doing it because you can gain more and more out of it. How we used it is to use inactive theories, particularly trying to understand which factors influence this experience of pain and try to expand on the biopsychosocial model and to highlight that biological, psycho and social factors dynamically interact in complex ways. And we use the affordance-based model, particularly try to understand how pain shapes our experience of ourselves, our bodies and our environment. So which kind of actions we perceive possible to us to really putting the focus on the feeling and acting individual. Um, these may be as the most basic starting points um, of it, which maybe also Peter might build up a bit. Um, but um, yeah, I think this this could be something like if this is the most basic takeaway point, that would be great. <laughs> um, but there's yeah, definitely more to say. Yeah, I can I can jump in. I think that's such a good starting point. And Daniel, I, I appreciate you being like, yeah, this can just be a starting point because it's such a complex body of literature. Um, so an activism encompasses kind of like a series of ideas and concepts related to better understanding cognition or, or the generation of experience. And what we've been doing is is applying these ideas to, to pain. So I guess I, I, those two kind of questions that Sabrina laid out, I think is really nice because that first one, like what are the factors influencing the experience of pain? I think an activism can offer some 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 value here. Um, so there's different types of inactivism, as, as Sabrina already kind of alluded to, um, but most kind of argue that the brain, the body, the environment are all important for, for understanding cognition or, or experience. Um, so very similar to saying biological, psychological, and social factors are all important. So I think that won't be a surprise to, to most folks. Um, and activism also tells us how these kind of different uh, aspects relate to each other in these kind of complex and, and non-linear ways. Um, and so these ideas are often expressed by what uh, an activist often call and cognitive scientists call uh, 4E cognition. Um, so that could be one entry point. I think there's hundreds of ways that we could start to talk about an activism, but like one way is to talk about these different E's in the four E's. So uh, the idea that cognition is embodied, uh, it's embedded, it's extended, and inactive. So um, Daniel, I don't know what your preference is, but I'm happy to do like a little brief summary of each of those E's. Um, I at least try to do my best, because um, when you look in the philosophical literature, like this is really in-depth, tricky stuff to navigate, and, and maybe a starting point at least to the best of my ability to like describe those ease in like a, a tangible way might be helpful. Absolutely. That would be a helpful starting point. And we can build off that. And then Sabrina can correct you every time you make a mistake. It, 
I yeah, that's the always embarrassing thing when we talk. I'm like, who's gonna say what, and like, how are we gonna navigate this? And I'm always like, uh, we we have good discussions about how to how to present this stuff because it's it's tricky. It's super tricky. Um, but I guess starting with like the idea that cognition is embodied. So this just suggests that cognition depends directly on the body as a functional whole. So not just, just the brain. Um, so simply put the, the state of our body and the way that we move shapes the experience of ourselves and our experiences of the world. Uh, the idea that cognition is embedded. Um, so that means that cognition relies heavily on uh, the physical and social environment, um, which serves to kind of scaffold or support cognition. So a really simple way to understand cognition being embedded is just that our context shapes our experiences. Uh, the idea that cognition is extended uh, means that the environment not only kind of scaffolds or supports cognition, but it can be actually a part of cognition in certain circumstances if the person and the environment are kind of coupled in in certain ways. So there's lots of kind of philosophical literature on this and, and debate about this. But one kind of simple way to understand this is the use of cell phones. So uh, philosophers often use this, this as a, like a contemporary example. So uh, using cell phones kind of provides like uh, uh, an external memory. So we don't memorize people's phone numbers anymore. At least most folks don't. Uh, we offload them into our into our phones. So if you think about it, if you take a person's phone away, they can actually lose the ability to complete certain cognitive tasks. Um, so you take away my phone, I'm not going to be able to call a call a friend. So there's a variety of different kind of like technological advan uh, applications or uh, applications of how certain aspects of the environment shape uh, or are a part of a person's cognitive processes. And that all leads us to the idea that cognition is inactive and that brings the ease together. So it, it, it nicely kind of like all these different E's kind of build on each other. So through being embodied, embedded and extended, the ideas that we enact or, or bring forth our unique experiences of ourselves and in our world. Um, so most listeners will probably be like, this is so philosophical and abstract and, and it, it's a hard thing, I think, to to navigate. Um, but some analogies I, I found helpful over the years. So um, people, philosophers like Evan Thompson, one of the, the developers of the inactive approach, uses this analogy of a bird's flight and, and comparing that to uh, cognition or, or the mind or the generation of experience. And in one of my papers from, uh, I think it was like 2019, we took that analogy and then we adapted it to better understand pain. Um, so the, the kind of the, the general idea of this analogy is that if we want to understand a bird's flight, um, we can't just do some sort of like scientific investigation of just the feathers or uh, just only look into the wings. We need to zoom out a little bit. Um, yes, the wings and the feathers are, are important, but we need to look at the full bird. And we also need to zoom out even further to look at that bird's interaction with that dynamic atmosphere. And so considering all this together, um, we can see how flight emerges through a bird's, the full bird's interaction with their environment. And I think we can apply these same ideas to pain. So kind of unpack all those different kind of four E's, unpack this analogy and apply it, apply it to pain. So the general idea that we pitched in that paper was like, if we want really a comprehensive understanding of pain, 
we can't only just look into the brain or only look into the bodily tissues. We need to zoom out. We need to look at the full person, but we also need to zoom out even further and look at that person's interaction with their environment, that physical and social environment. So taking all this together, we got to look at all these factors and how they may shape the, the experience of pain. And it's often quite, quite fluid. Um, and I think there's clinical, although this is like, these are philosophical ideas, I think there are kind of like clinical takeaways. Um, so suggesting that there's always these many kind of factors interacting, shaping the experience. Um, so I mentioned it's kind of like a nonlinear approach. So moving away from those kind of like simplistic explanations, oh, just we're going to blame a disc or we're going to blame just a single joint or tendon. Um, other fact, other kind of like implications, it takes the changing environment and context very seriously because um, those things can shape, shape a person's experience. Um, and it also prompts us to focus on the person's unique experiences um, from this kind of like first person perspective. And this is where I think it would be great to pass it over to Sabrina to talk about affordances because that's another piece or at least a, a commonly a piece of an inactive approach. People rely on that concept. So that's enough of me talking all this, all this philosophical jargon. <laughs> yeah, maybe I can directly connect to that. So I think that many of these ideas that Peter outlined will come also when you think about pain in terms of affordances. Um, because affordance models also very often highlight that there are multiple factors that are involved and that we have to see this um, whatever phenomenon we are interested in here, pain or the persistence of pain from the perspective of the person in this constant ongoing interaction with the environment. Um, and maybe starting a bit with the concept of affordances, because this is actually a quite tricky one. Um, and philosophers are still uh, constantly debating about what it actually is. I think um, this is just part of, a, of, of these kind of ongoing debates. But very basically, also how Gibson, who kind of invented this term and also says, like, this term is not in a dictionary. He really just made up the term from the verb uh, to afford, where he said that what he wants to highlight with that is that there are certain opportunities for behavior in the environment that just certain kind of organisms are responsive to. And whether they are, this really depends on the environment and the organism. So simple ideas might be the tree might be climbable for a monkey, but not for us. Um, a stone might offer to hide for a certain kind of insect, but not for us. And this has to do with how the environment is shaped, for instance, that a stone is just too small uh, for us to hide under, but also given the fact um, how our bodies are made, right? So how we developed in evolutionary biology as the certain kind of beings with a certain height and a certain body structure, certain kind of joints uh, and muscles that we are having. And I think originally uh, Gibson often thought about this in this terms of organisms. So it's rather comes from this idea of biology and also often used in evolutionary biology, but it has definitely been developed more to also think about that how we culturally grow up our own personal histories can shape the way which kind of um, action possibilities we are responsive to. So what we have learned um, that, for instance, um, um, a hand that someone stretches out might, for people in our culture, afford to be shaken as a form of greeting, while for people in another culture, this might not be the fact. Or that we might say that um, for some people, another person might afford to be hugged to get emotional comfort, while for others, it might not, because it might not be part of their personal upbringing. 
And we have, I think, an idea of affordances that also means that how we perceive our environment and which actions it offers us really depends on how we feel, what kind of personal goals we have, kind of interests we have, what sensations we are undergoing. So a very common example is the chair. To sit down on a chair or whether the chair offers this might be quite relevant and standing out for some individuals, maybe when we are really tired um, and in a context where this is socially acceptable, while for other people in another context might not. Or even me, for me, um, I don't know, if I have the aim of like changing the light bulb, um, I might experience the chair as something to climb on. So I think the interesting thing is as soon as we think about affordances, we already think about the first person. So how do I perceive in a certain um, environment the world? We put a very strong focus on action. Um, this is something in philosophy that especially authors like Colin Klein is at the a uh, ANU, for instance, also brought up and that very nicely fits into this, that we really think about how do we engage with the world in an active manner? Um, and this is also very relevant for pain. And that this depends on multiple factors, how we um, have been constructed through evolutionary biology, um, through our social life, our cultures, um, and our personal upbringings and how we feel in certain moments. And I think we're, um, so we didn't invent it, for instance, and also not a fair and space models. This is already coming from a huge philosophical uh, tradition. But I think what we then try to do is to really think about what does pain do in this picture? So how does pain shape our affordances and how we perceive the world? Um, and what we came up with is that in acute pain, there seems to be like a very flexible change that's often short-termed and also to a certain degree adaptive. So when I burn my hands, I might experience this as very salient at the moment to not touch my hand. So there are certain movements that I um, experience as very strongly to be avoided. While other kinds of actions might um, seem very attractive, like putting my burnt hand on the cold water. So there's like a strong and flexible change in how we experience affordances. And this might be adaptive. We perform the kind of activities we feel motivated to. And this might then actually help us to go back into a pain-free state. And somehow what seems to happen in chronic pain is that there's a more fundamental change in how we experience the environment, that less and less activities actually appear attractive, while, so to say, the world of opportunities closes off. It shrinks down and more and more actions might be associated with increased pain, with fear, with embarrassment or stigmatization. So one could say that this is more and more a world of impossibilities or even like of threatening and signals of avoidance. And that this can then contribute to these kind of cycles of overgeneralized avoidance behavior that even further leads to kind of a shrinking um, of our, the action possibilities we perceive. And this also at the same time, and this is often considered to be like two sides of the same coin, this really changes how we experience our bodies. Because normally the bodies are transparent and allow us to like flexibly integrate, interact with the environment. But especially in this kind of closing down of the environment, the body becomes an obstacle. So it's rather experienced um, what we sometimes find in reports as like broken or it's no longer useful. It's even hindering. It's something that's very negatively associated instead of what normally should be the case or in a pain free state where the body is just transparent. We just use it to smoothly interact with environments It's something very potent that allows us to be active. And it becomes the quite the opposite in that. And we thought that like constructing this difference between pain-free states, acute pains and chronic pains in this action-orientated way really brings together many of the ideas that we find in an activism with this first-person perspective with a highlight on the multiple factors that are involved. And to really say it's about trying to ask how we can get um, people back into experience themselves as active elements in the engagement with the environment. 
it's such a better uh, pragmatic view of acute versus chronic pain. I think we see a lot of the um, the kind of hard line past the three-month stage, it suddenly becomes chronic and suddenly you start treating them differently, whereas this allows that flexibility. And again, as you both mentioned, that focus on on the inactive, the, the action-oriented nature and seeing how we can um, re relate to a person's functional goals and, and, and also respect the the hindrance that they must be experiencing first person um, and i love the video game analogy which you both also collaborated on in the recent paper that also can help if you don't mind expanding on that analogy a little bit to to really illustrate the the first person experience and also affordances um, should i start with that um yeah so um we wrote this paper together with Michael Ray uh, and to be fair, it was also, I think he came up with the idea of thinking about like, maybe maybe we can use game analogies to just like um, make this a little bit more accessible because analogies in general, is, it's, it's, it's not there to like uh, minimize the experience of people. It's not like, oh, your experience is just a game or something along those lines, but it's really more this idea. It's something so difficult for us to imagine some how it is for other people to be themselves, to um, how it is to experience chronic pain. I've never experienced it. I don't know. So I just rely on reports and me already studying for a while. This topic might have maybe a grasp of it, but how do we convey these kind of complex ideas? And we thought analogies are actually quite useful in doing so. Um, and the basic idea is actually just that we can imagine um, a patient or a person like being uh, like someone playing a video game and the avatar you have in the game is your body that allows you to interact with the game world. And which kind of actions are possible for you and you perceive as possible in this gaming world depends on how the game world is designed with, uh, so to say, the other NPCs in there, so the other players there that form the social environment, but also, let's say, the trees uh, and the houses in this game world who are part of the material environment. And it depends on the abilities um, that the game character has, um, just like we depend on our bodies in order to engage with our environment. And what we try to show is that you can imagine um, a, a character maybe where there's always like a glitch between you using your controller and, for example, your, um, your avatar not reacting in a way that you actually intended. Um, or that certain kind of action ability, possibilities in the world are just no longer available. You click, but it's not working, or always something negative is happening than you're doing. Then we can start maybe to imagine how really this entire game world shrinks down. There's like no longer these kind of activities in the environment are really accessible to us. We just feel completely lost. We're just unable to do something with this game world. And the game character might be a frustrating part of it, at least the game character is the obstacle for us that no longer really allows us to engage with this environment, uh, with the game world. And what we normally would do as, as gamers, like we get frustrated and we would just quit. And uh, the thing is, to a certain degree, we can, in the analogy, think about this as being like a, a person with chronic pain who is, so to say, stuck in a body that no longer allows them to meaningful engage with their environment. Um, so in this case, the gaming world. And the question is what we can do about it. And um, I think this is where the game analogy is also very nice, is to say, sometimes in tutorials and games, we have these little advisors, right, that highlight, you can still do this. And if you don't know how to do, maybe you first do that, and then you try that. And then, um, or we just like get these little clues. And the idea is like, this is to a certain degree what clinicians can do. It's not necessarily to... Um, 
to change everything in the game world, but to advise people a little bit like, here, you can do that. You can, maybe you cannot go down this storyline, but there's another one. And maybe this is just as interesting. So don't try to find the one way to do this, but try to be flexible and see what you can still do, especially this, what people can do instead of just focusing on the cons. Um, I think this is why we like the video game analogy as well, because there is something like the clinician in these games, in these functions normally already in there. And this is like the coaches or advisors that might highlight things that are positive and possible. It uh, might show my age, but I think of the Zelda games and Navi, the the kind of the fly the, with the blue light that tells uh, Link what to do. And maybe in the Sims game where there's a, little quests that you could uh, select in in certain gameplays. So it can really frame what our role is as clinicians and maybe help clinicians take a, a step away, zooming out of maybe some of the expectations uh, of being a fixer or the this uh, the pressure perhaps to to take away someone's pain, immediately reducing symptoms as that's their only role, where instead we're actually, we can't really change everything. We can't change the world that we'd like to try, but we can guide the person and see how they can maybe interact with their environment differently or, or uh, allow them opportunities to see, uh, put a spotlight to their gameplay situation to maybe see a, an object as an affordance where possibly before that wasn't uh, an, an action opportunity. Yeah, that's a very lovely description. Yeah, that's... Love it, yeah. And... Um, so we've gone over some of the, the benefits. We've talked about the focus on action. We've talked a little bit about um, complexity and appreciating, embracing that first-person experience. Um, kind of reminds me as well of uh, being stuck in a Monopoly game and um, having a head start versus not having a head start at all. That, that frustrated feeling, that experience that we get when we can't win a game and it's as though everyone's against us. I think that there's something in there that, that can't uh, replace that felt first-person experience. So the video game analogy is incredible. Um, but what are some of the other benefits? And, and maybe also um, when may we uh, think we are having an inactive approach, but we're not actually having an active approach? Because I can see my mind a few years ago thinking that I'm, I'm, I'm doing this already. I'm, I'm already treating the person. I'm already looking at um, th their environment. But... Upon reflection, I think uh, Daniel from a few years ago would have appreciated a bit of honest reflection to see uh, maybe there's some other things missing, other components necessary uh, on top of uh, uh, a whole person, person-centered approach. So benefits and also where, what, maybe what it isn't. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. I guess maybe as a starting point, uh, one of the things that I think, I guess that we haven't really touched on is like, it does offer like a strong theoretical framework that I think that can overcome or at least fill in some of the gaps um, in the, the biopsychosocial model. So um, if we, if we actually look at it, you look at the work of Engel, like really important work, but it it's, it's not, uh, a really a robust philosophical framework. There's not a lot of underlying theory and he was very vague in terms of what he put put forward there. So uh, the uh, an active approach, the concept of affordances uh, has a really rich philosophical history that we can draw from. So a really kind of robust uh, framework. And I think one of the benefits with that is it 
could potentially start to safeguard against some of these kind of like misapplications that we see of the the biopsychosocial model. So we've written quite a bit about this in, in different papers, but uh, oftentimes the, the biopsychosocial models used in kind of like very reductionist or fragmented or, or kind of like linear, linear ways. And I think a lot of that has to do with that vague uh, theoretical foundation. There's not a lot of, a lot of guidance there. And so people often think they're applying like a biopsychosocial approach, um, but they'll be potentially overly kind of reductionistic. So saying things like, oh, well, uh, pain is just an output of the brain and overemphasis on the, on the brain is just like one example. And potentially a, an inactive approach can help us become less neurocentric and, and maybe have a bit more of a balanced approach, um, might be able to help us become less individualistic in terms of how we consider the different factors that may shape the experience of pain. So uh, looping back to that concept of embeddedness or even the concept of extendedness, I think if we take those concepts quite seriously, we're going to be considering the environment as uh, uh, shaping a person's experience or actually being a part of the, that experience. So whether it's the use of a wheelchair or prosthetics or these other types of material items, they can actually shape a person's experience or even be a part of a person's sense of self. Um, so I think of examples like I was talking with uh, one of my PhD supervisors about the concept of extendedness. And she was like, oh, and started telling me all these. She's like, oh, that totally makes sense from a clinical standpoint. And she's talking about how um, these these stories of people saying like, oh, well, this clinician just touched my wheelchair or they touched my prosthetic and in a way they felt assaulted like they weren't they weren't given permission or consent um to for the clinician to do that and um they felt violated and it's like and she's like this theory actually when we take it seriously would help clinicians better understand why that would be be the case um so that's just one 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 example um maybe sabrina if you want to build on build on this yeah, maybe two points that might be added. So I would fully agree with Peter that sometimes like one of the big advantages that it can really, if you take it seriously, it can help to better um, understand the biopsychosocial model without any way trying to replace it. So it's not that the inactivism is really an alternative to the biopsychosocial model. I think that they have really quite similar uh, basic ideas and that it rather can help us to fully see the potential of the biopsychosocial model also that it can help us to truly accept this humanistic motive that Engel has or had originally in the biopsychosocial model. So to take the people, what Peter described, like seriously with also their first person perspective, because it can be um, such a game changer in the entire way of how we, um, how we want to manage pain. Maybe a second aspect is that um, I think it's really hard to say, like, do I, am I really like something like a, an active clinicians? Because this sounds as if there's like a guideline or very strict criterion was like, if you, if you check these boxes, you can say you're an, an activist. Um, I think even uh, Peter and I, uh, I don't know how Peter sees this. I'm not always claiming myself to be an, an activist. I'm someone who works with an active theories. Um, and this rather has to do with the fact that it's not, that an activism is this one thing and that there's like an inactive method, like this one kind of thing that you would do, like manual therapy. It's not like there's an inactive equivalent to that. It's really rather a broad theoretical framework that might define how we think about pain, what pain is, what pain means and how it's brought about. So about the causal structures behind it. 
that might then have an influence how we engage with patients, how we engage as clinicians, how we engage between different disciplines with one another and have conversations about it. But it's really not the case that an activism is a, like, how would you say, like an empirical theory that you could also say, like, we derive this one method from it and then we test it. It's rather a broader philosophical tradition that might shape the way in which we direct research or clinical practice. Um, and therefore, there might be four different people doing four different methods, and all of them might be inactive um, or like in, in line with a, a general inactive approach without necessarily people having to do the same thing. And I think a lot of studies also seem to indicate that we can do very specific things in different manners, and all of them, if they have a general underlying thing that they take into account, like getting people into activity, changing how people perceive their own bodies, however concrete way we are using or how we are reaching this kind of goal might be useful. And that's why in activism, it's not replacing any methods people are using that might already be effective. It's just putting them into context and giving maybe words how to think about it or to compare different kinds of methods. That framework to then uh, help shape the, the clinical uh, application on top of to um, to give it more of that solid foundation um, and kind of uh, also help when we need to zoom in and when we need to zoom out. I think some of the misrepresentations can be uh, that we're zooming out too much or we're not taking into consideration the, the, the biomedical when it's kind of like a, one of the misrepresentations of the BPS. But I'm curious from what you've maybe come across so far, has there been a, any uh, clear uh, misunderstanding of and an active approach by clinicians, possibly to hide their overwhelm at not really understanding all the philosophical terms that we went over in the first first few minutes of this podcast. But hopefully that helps. But I'm curious if there's been any anything else that you've uh, come across so far. Yeah, Sabrina, do you want to kick it off with any ideas or? Um. Yeah, I'm actually not sure. I mean, one aspect maybe that we talked about um, this or more relates also to something Sue said that um, one aspect definitely is that we are just so, so we started to use an activism for pain, but there's like a huge tradition behind that. That's the one thing maybe to take into account. So definitely always encourage people to also uh, have a look at part of uh, of the discussion on situated cognition. So there might be different other aspects and works that could be very important. Um, and again, maybe highlighting what I just said before, um, that it's not the, the case that an activism is giving a very nice manual. I think this is just sometimes people are so used to when you learn a new theory or a new concept and they say, like, if you do this, you're going to get like help all your patients getting pain free. You just have to do this one particular kind of thing. Um, and I think an activism is, is quite the opposite of telling you, no, things are complicated. Things are going to be uncertain. There's no one way to do it. And I know that this is often very uncomfortable for human beings in general. We want to have solutions. We want to know that's the problem, that's our solution. And to a certain degree, I understand that an activism is also in parts frustrating because it always tells you there's never going to be something like this. this it's always going to be complex. There's always going to be tons of stuff that interacts. And this also means if something worked for one patient, it might not work for the next. It might not even work for the same patient in the future. So learning to accept uncertainties instead of getting an answer is to a certain degree what an activism is doing. And I can imagine that this is sometimes uh, 
the first difficult step to overcome because then it leads to if you accept uncertainties then you can start to think about and how do we handle them but um i guess that sometimes it's people might think or interpret uh, an activism as like it gives you a solution and to a certain degree it tries of course but uh the solution is very complex and it comes along with uh not giving you a concrete thing to directly do um to a certain degree this is part of the journey to find this out i wonder if this is a, a helpful i guess framework to for clinicians to point out maybe methodologies that do have these false promises of non-linear reductive uh, solutions to a complex phenomena that you know emerges and it's so relational and there's so many different factors interacting with each other so maybe it's a, a way to filter uh, less reliable methods um, i'm wondering if that might be one of the advantages would you say i love that um make makes sense to me and like i think sabrina brought this up but i think it's an important point to emphasize is just like yeah this isn't replacing the the biopsychosocial model it's more just like building on it um to to prevent some of those or hopefully prevent some of those issues that we're seeing so like you said those overly linear approaches and so it provides a bit more of a, a theoretical theoretical framework and i guess one one kind of thing I see sometimes is people think that we need to explain an activism to patients, and uh, I don't think that's the that's the case. Uh, as already mentioned, it's more of like a, a philosophical framework that kind of guides thinking and guides care. So I like to think of it as like uh, the framework, like an iceberg. So most of it's kind of underwater. The patient doesn't need to see those types of things; they just need to see the part, one part, um, the the tip of the iceberg. So. I think you can parallel this to like learning anatomy or learning physiology. Um, clinicians have all this background knowledge uh, underwater that supports just the the tip. So you don't need to teach patients everything about anatomy or physiology, going to the Krebs cycle or things like that. That that doesn't make sense. Um, you just provide a, a little bit of a, uh, information uh, uh, as needed, and depending on the patient, depending on the scenario. Um, so, so that's one one thing I I figured I'd mention. And like, I guess another thing is like I think Sabrina mentioned this to a certain extent is like people think an activism is new or just an approach to pain, and there it's not. Uh, these ideas have been brewing for a long time. There's hundreds of papers. There's a ton of different books um and activism and and ecological approaches the concept of affordances have been applied in like so many different areas um so you see inactive approaches to architectural design you see it to inactive approaches to music making um inactive approaches to psychiatry um there's whole special issues on uh inactive approaches to ethics um and i think a lot of people the, the, like in the clinical realm, they're like, oh, it's just like about pain or they think it's a, a new idea, but it's like this stuff has been going on for a long time. What we've just been doing is taking it and making some applications and some bridges to to pain and, and clinical practice more more broadly. And I wonder if it's, um, I love the analogy example, if, if we just leave people with what knowledge they need to learn. I think it, kind of the learning about, an inactive approach has um, brought back memories of when I first came across pain science and wanting to tell everyone, you know, all that there is to neuroscience. And then they leave again, number one, overwhelmed, number two, confused. And number three, it's not helpful for what their goals were initially for the session. So I think uh, 
it, it, that was a helpful uh, comment to not revert back to just pain splaining now with an inactive flavor instead of a BPS biopsychosocial flavor or instead of a pain science neurocentric flavor. I love that. And I think what that nicely points to is like a key thing that I learned over the years was like, uh, and that was through uh, learning about an activism is like the focus on like the power of action as a learning tool. So instead of just like that passive, like we're going to sit you down and educate you on the neurophysiology of pain, it's like, well, using movement, using these active strategies as a way to, to get people, people learning. So I think in many ways, and activism and the focus on action uh, aligns with approaches like experiential learning, like behavioral experiments, graded exposure. So looping back to what Sabrina already mentioned, like uh, sometimes it's not about like having something totally new. It's just offering a frame, a philosophical framework that that supports what clinicians are already doing or can potentially strengthen what clinicians are already doing. And I like to think of it as like the, having this kind of like, explicit framework can help us be uh, like harness some of the stuff that we're already doing implicitly. Um, so doing things with more intention um, and the idea is that we could do it better, possibly get better outcomes. So it's not saying this is totally something brand new. It's more of like, Hey, there's all this rich body of literature that offers a framework and we can harness that in, in clinical practice and be more intentional with some of the, the things that we're saying and the actions that we're, we're doing in the clinics. Sabrina, did you have anything to add? I've, I've got a, a, another question. Otherwise that just popped to my mind. No, please go for it. I'm, I think this was a, like a, an awesome characterization uh, by Peter. <laughs> <laughs> if only we could see the visuals, but um, I was curious for now I'm thinking if I was to, so my mom actually I found out today has persisting knee pain and we have a bunch of local clinicians. And one of the questions that comes to my mind is who can I trust in this situation to, to apply that kind of person-centered uh, care that the respects the first person, um, her experience of pain, um, appreciates complexity. And I, I think the the brand names and the uh, perhaps reputations of certain professions or professional titles is very much an appealing heuristic, but we don't really have that um, with a lot of, uh, uh, I say, an inactive approach or even emerging understandings, current up-to-date understandings of pain. So how, how can we navigate this um, scenario and, and how would we know uh, who might be... Um, I guess, applying a more uh, affordance-based or, or an active approach to pain and, and unpack my question because it might not be the right question to ask, but I'm, I'm curious in that situation, if you had a family member, um, how would you know which clinician and how would you know that that, that clinician was applying that um, an active approach? I love this. And that's like the big question, like <laughs> if you want if you want to get to the status of like uh, how well practitioners are doing in a certain area, it's like that exact scenario. It's like have a, a good family member or a friend, a good friend uh, looking for a referral and how many people can you actually refer to? <laughs> uh, how many people do you actually trust? And um, it, there's not a lot sometimes. Um, and, and that's it shows some of the limitations that that we have. Um, but things that I typically look for that would be uh, aligned with an inactive approach would be 
simple stuff. So is the clinician like truly listening? Uh, are they collaborating with the, the individual? Um, are they exploring the many factors that shape the individual's experience and, and how their life has impact, been impacted in different ways? Um, these things sound really basic, but I think they're rarely done well. Uh, it obviously requires these uh, good interpersonal skills that, that, that need to be developed. Um, and I think this is important because um, the interactions with patients, uh, the, including history taking and assessment, uh, all those things are, are essential and even can be considered interventions in their, their own right. Um, yeah, th these, are, these are things that I, th I think about tying back to like active learning, collaborating with the patient. Uh, those would be uh, aligned with an inactive approach. Um, those are things that I'd be looking for. Um, Sabrina, I know already mentioned a couple things like navigating uncertainty. Um, we talked about like those kind of like uh, moving beyond just those like linear explanations of pain, blaming just a single, single structure. These are the types of things that, that I typically look for. And they sound really simple, but it's, it's hard, hard to find. Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe I can just briefly add to that. Like I, of course, have no uh, clinical uh, experience myself, so I never worked with patients, but just from the experience that I had and like being in contact with clinicians from different pro uh, professions, so from chiropractic or from osteopathy or from physiotherapy, at least my impression is it, that it's never been so much about which profession the people are from, because I've met from all of these profession people who are committing to all what Peter has just been described so um being very interested in like doing better for the patient being interested to learn more to find ways to actually implement many kind of ideas that are out there in research or um theoretically or empirically and and that it's like really like having to find people who as people describe where well, i had the feeling that there is really this kind of communication and people are really trying to take all things into account that might help and have taking first person um, um, perspective seriously. While um, I sometimes for myself have to struggle to find out where a lot of difference between, for instance, different professions are. Um, so what is really the core of the difference between the professions or is it about there being someone who really tries to be patient-centered and evidence-based and just trying to be there for the patient. So, um, yeah, I think I don't have a good answer to that, actually, to the question than, than just that, that it's maybe less about the profession and the particular kind of management that they do. Of course, there are things that work better than others. We know this, but we also know that there's tons of different ways in which we can get to the same goal um, so that this is often more important. Yeah, I think this uh, highlights maybe applying some of the inactive approach to clinicians in the way that we practice. And if we can appreciate the embeddedness that we are always in our environment, then we can reflect on our clinical environment and how the context that a clinician is in can shape our actions and our cognitions and then also interact with the relationship that we, we have with a, a client who comes in for the first time saying hi and then you know, seeing maybe all the intimidating gym equipment in the background or maybe seeing a treatment table and that, that already shapes the the interaction without us uh, perhaps having a verbal kind of conversation in the first place. And again, that touches back on having this framework allows us a, a stronger foundation and uh, an intent so that we can intentionally shape that interaction with not only our words and our actions and what we say, but also 
our context and our environment. Nice. Love it. Yeah. When I get two nods at the same time from leading researchers, I feel very reassured. That's amazing. <laughs> um, if, if we extend this, pun intended, extend this uh, an active approach to uh, clinicians and, and to our environment in private practice and perhaps even um, you, you mentioned the, the institutions and we are within the, I guess, institution, healthcare systems, um, and there are some constraints and affordances within that. What what might be some considerations for for the listeners that um, things in our environment that can shape the way that we interact that we might may, may not have um, really recognized or acknowledged? Yeah, um, Sabrina, you want to go? Yeah. yeah, I just like um, maybe about uh, Peter, you might say way more about, so to say, the practical barriers and obstacles that might actually be there. Maybe I can just say a little bit about how we can maybe theoretically think about this. There's this nice concept of niches so that we live in certain kind of niches and like environments that we construct for us that make certain kind of things more easier to do than others. Um, and often we think about this maybe as how for a person, how their environment is. This is what our idea of pain is, of course, constructed about. But we can also think about so-called social clinical niches. So the way in which we as a society, but also as professions, think about pain. This also has, of course, on how we construct our environments, our institutions, the messages we convoy, the beliefs we have there. All of them shape um, how future uh, clinicians will act. They will transfer their ideas to uh, patients. This will have an impact on how um, lay people in society that are neither suffering from pain nor our clinicians actually um, talk about this, maybe then also being caregivers to people who have pain. So all of this like definitely shapes the way. Um, and there might be a lot of um, implicit beliefs that we have and that we convey. And this is no way to say that it's uh, malintended or anything, um, but we just do this constantly all the time to have messages um, about what pain is and how we think about it and whether we think, oh, so you're having something physically wrong, so then it's fine if you stay home. But if it's like this just in your hat thing that I still, when you often talk about pain, is like lingering around uh, even like everyday conversations, just having you feel how a lot of intentions are um, just messages that we internalize are, are still there. And um, I think for me often, and I, this is not about blaming anyone, but to, just to be aware of the fact that all of us are active parts of constructing these niches. So these niches are not passively happening and they are not fixed. Like we construct them and we maintain them by the things we do in everyday life and this means we all can be active elements in changing these kind of things. These niches are constructed. So we we actively contribute. We, of course, shape by them, but we also actively contribute to keeping them up. And I try for myself also in everyday life just to be a bit more cautious of like what kind of beliefs and things I directly say. Also, like how I communicate with people, because, of course, I'm also still having a lot of these intuitions. So um, it's a learning process and trying to be aware of it. And that, of course, a lot of social problems that we see in society as such, maybe um, racism or sexism, all of these things, of course, also convey into our social clinical niches that we should be aware about um, and try to be, uh, yeah, to accept that we are not just passive, we are active parts of these niche constructions, and this makes us ourselves possible targets of intervention. That's amazing, that reflection on us being the the intervention almost the the context that we 
are that we shape, we create, and that interaction that we have, and looking at the um, the cultural, social norms that we might be um, perpetuating, and just reflecting on them with curiosity and, and questioning whether it's a helpful or unhelpful, and looking at the then the implications for not only the present and the clients, patients that we help, but also future. Um, generations even I'm thinking now and we talk about the carbon footprint in our environment we can look at our clinical footprint as well nice nice mind blown <laughs> uh, I yeah I should I don't have a lot to add but like I guess we've already been talking about affordances in terms of like the patient and, and tethering that to the idea of of pain but the same concept applies to the clinician. So um, different affordances depending on the, the individual and the, the clinical environment that they work in. So that, that clinical environment can constrain or enable all these different opportunities for, for thought or action. So I think a lot of the kind of barriers and facilitators to, to providing like good kind of comprehensive care um, in terms of like an inactive approach are the same ones that we see with like uh, trying to implement like a, a more general kind of BPS approach in clinical practice. So um, immediate ones that come to mind are like certain expectations of like clinic owners, certain financial incentives, all these things may be uh, a barrier to providing like comprehensive pain assessment and comprehensive care. So um, Dan, you're, you're an exercise physiologist, right? Um, yes. And um, probably a different context already. So, um, it's, um, in Australia, uh, perhaps a different scope of practice to kinesiologists, I believe in Canada or exercise physiologists, depending on where you are. Yeah. Similar. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I imagine you would run into a lot of, like, I'd love to hear your, not to throw it back on you. Um, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but like, uh, I'd love to hear about some of the, the barriers and facilitators that you've encountered, like in terms of like moving forward these ideas, because uh, obviously you've been moving forward, like a BPS approach to, to practice. Uh, I've seen you engaging with uh, these different inactive ideas, like early, early on. And it was such, so great to see. And I'd love to hear about some of the, the challenges and the things that you faced. Yeah. Yes, it's um, it's fascinating having exercise in your professional title and seeing people's responses uh, or lack of responses because they never book because they're not open to the idea of exercising their pain. That's just ludicrous because that's not what they were pre-framed to expect from other clinicians. Um, so for uh, there's there's kind of a two sides to that coin where people don't really have many expectations of what an exercise physiologist will be. It probably involve exercise, but Will there be a lab and they'll do some tests or hook me up to a VO2 max machine? Um, <laughs> yeah. so, so there is that. It opens up the affordance of uh, opportunities for exploration and for movement experiments. Um, it perhaps closes a certain um, sector of, I guess, uh, people with pain. Um, uh, the, the market, we'll say, um, of people with pain. I don't like using that term, but... Um, that may not even come into a gym-based or active-based approach in the first place. So there are some uh, pros and cons to that. And uh, I can definitely speak for a lot of exercise physiologists in private practice who encounter that um, similar kind of challenge. And from the more manual therapists or physical therapists with um, manual therapy in their marketing or manual therapy that is expected, that's also uh, can be, for better or worse, uh, an affordance 
where people come in with that prior expectation that they will have their pain fixed, quote unquote, away from them um, with a, a manual intervention. So that's yeah. that's what I've heard. I'm sure you've probably come across clinicians who've also voiced uh, that as well. Yeah, I, I yeah, I love that. I appreciate you sharing that. And like, um, yeah, I figured there would be lots of parallels, but like, yeah, that's interesting. That idea of like, yeah, exercise in the name already setting certain expectations potentially for some right to right right at the get go before they even see you. So super interesting and. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I've been following the different work that you've been doing and just wanted to yeah, express my appreciation, all the all the hard work you've been doing and moving these ideas forward. It's certainly not not easy. And I'm sure at many times it feels like you're pushing against the grain. And yeah, yeah, I appreciate Absolutely. it. And it's thanks to the work that you both are doing. And I'm, I'm learning the niche now that we can all carve. And that's a gives me a bit of hope because it can be um, quite a... a I wouldn't say draining, but uh, use of energy when there is that context that we are all embedded within and the context may not afford certain um, opportunities for a person in front of us exploring their pain because of the constraints um, that they've been given prior. Um, yeah. I know there are four dimensions of, of affordances that I'd love to just expand upon because I know the first time I read some of the definitions, they... Um, made me feel a sense of overwhelm as we talked about in the start of this podcast. So if, if you don't mind expanding on salience, uh, on valence, mindness and temporal horizon in relation to, to pain. And, and even if we can link that to, to clinicians um, in clinical practice as well. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe I can start the base. Um Hey, maybe I can say a little bit about the four things to pain and maybe Peter, you can then think maybe how this connects also a bit more to clinical practice if this is like a fair share to do. This is a um, perfect example of collaborative, interactive, emergent conversation right here. Really enjoying it. Um, so the salience of affordances, you could think about it as the strengths of how relevant something appears to a person. So you can think that uh, a chair might afford to sit down and you enter the room after you just had a meeting and it's like you it, you see the opportunity and you're like, but it's not super relevant to you at the moment. Um, or you can think of like you're really tired. You had to run to your office and you just enter your office uh, and you see the chair so that there's really a difference in the strength of how inviting, so to say, the thing is for you, the action opportunity. Um, in pain, you could think that, for example, an acute pain, burning my hand, putting it onto cold water is something very, very important. So it has a very high salient to actually to be done. While other things just might lose their salience in the moment of time. Just a second before I was thinking about grabbing a glass of water, but now this is so to say the pain just really changes of like how relevant things seem to me. The valence that we try, this is also in the work of Gibson actually, but not many philosophers have talked about it before, is that things can not only be attractive. So this is typically how affordance is understood. Like I said, like this putting hand on the water, sitting down, something that's very inviting. But I think it's not only this difference between inviting or no relevance at all, but it can be no relevance at all, inviting or something you really don't want to do. Like, for example, as someone who's really afraid of spiders, it's not only that the spiders is not inviting to me, it's quite the opposite. It makes me want to leave the room. Um, so it's really something that has an aversion to it. Um, yeah, you can imagine how it was for me to live in Australia for two months. Um, and now I think that in pain, again, 
especially this negative affordances. So things that appear as uh, potential sources for pain, for fear is quite important to think about it. So a lot of things not only might lose, no longer being attractive, like going upstairs, like when you have um, chronic knee pain, but also as something to really be avoided and that more and more things are included in this category of like, don't do me, like having a red signal, like as if you would be in the video game and things just like the closer you come, the more you hear this dim, 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 dim music that's indicating you should really not be here. Um, we also added a third category that a few other philosophers have mentioned before. It's called minus. And what we try to indicate there is that some activities are just closer to or more important to who we consider ourselves to be. So you can think about not going upstairs anymore when you live in an environment where there are elevators anymore it might not actually make a tremendous effect on who you consider yourself to be. But say you are a parent and you're no longer able to pick up your child. This might be way more relevant in a sense that it really deeply affects of who you consider yourself to be, that these things are meaningful. They're not just relevant, they're deeply meaningful to who you are. And that especially when these kind of activities are affected through pain, um, that this can lead to this cycle of really of frustrating and feelings of hopelessness. Um, so for example, if people find ways to still do their job or engage in family activities or in religious activity despite the pain, then it might not lead to that much suffering and um, impairment in uh, life quality, though even the person is still having chronic pain. And especially working on this mindness might be a big aspect of um, not getting rid of the pain, but handling and living with the well with the pain. And the temporal horizon is something that we took also from the work, for example, of Sanke Dehan, uh, which she has done great work on affordance-based models, is that affordances might not only concern our present, but also our future. So we often think about what can we else do in the future? And what one big effect of chronic pain, quite similar to what we see, for example, also um, in depression, is that often the situation in which people are right now are projected into the future so that there's no um, possibility for change seen in the future, which often then leads to just people no longer trying um, to find solutions. Also, because out of frustration, when you've already like visited four different professionals and nothing seemed to actually help, people are still suffering from the pain, then they just project. And I mean, they're not blaming them for that. They project into the future. It's like, whatever I do, it's not going to change. It's not going to open up my field of my possibilities of action any longer and that this might have of course leading to this vicious cycle of like more and more things are avoided less and less future possibilities are actually seen um, and this is so to say how these different dimensions uh, might go together um, especially in chronic pain I, I love that like Sabrina I think you already embedded in like all these excellent clinical examples and um, that's why like I really appreciate the ongoing work that we're doing is we we have this kind of like back and forth um so i, I take on a lot of the, the kind of the philosophical stuff sometimes and then you take on the clinical stuff and it mutually kind of be beneficial and I, I i love it um so i don't i don't have anything really to to add like other than like what you just described it's it just more granularity in terms of like uh understanding affordances so it can be helpful for clinicians that really want to better understand like these different aspects of a, of an affordance based model or affordances um but also i guess one thing that we didn't talk about is it also offers an opportunity uh to provide a framework for for research so it's not just only in terms of clinical applications this 
more granularity, more detail can offer, uh, have research impl implications as well. So um, I know, I, I don't know how many researchers listen to <laughs> this podcast, probably not that many. I know it's more kind of clinically oriented, but yeah, it doesn't stop just at the, the, the clinical application. So then sorry that I just run with it. I'm sorry. Sometimes I'm just so taken away by, by philosophy and points of everything. That, no, I, I loved it. Yeah, that was good. It was helpful as well to, to again, uh, understand the first person experience of what they might be going through. And um, like Sabrina, you mentioned, if someone's had previous experiences where they haven't had the uh, uh, positive outcome and they've seen multiple clinicians and that can affect the, uh, the temporal horizon of, of certain um, objects and also their relationship to those objects and then the action opportunities that they have in their life in general. Um, and that can, I feel a sense of empathy because if I also had persisting pain and I didn't have positive interactions with multiple clinicians and I saw the 11th clinician and they were, um, promising to help guide me towards, you know, a better life, I would be like, what? No, I don't, I would have a lot of doubt. So that I think this can, um, allow a zoomed in perspective on what it must be like for someone with persisting pain and really appreciate the impact that it has not only on their body. I think that's what we're taught very much that biomedical, the body as machine paradigm and, and the, the body is broken and the body needs healing. And it's very much um, the body is the problem, but it's more yes. And that interaction of their body with the environment and then what it stops them from doing and the, the huge impact that that can have in so many areas of their life, not just their body. Nice. Nice. I, I don't know. I don't know if we mentioned this yet, but like one of like the, the fields or the movements that have ins, uh, inspired the development of an activism is phenomenology. So um, the, the study of, of consciousness or the study of, of what it's like to have certain experiences. And I think that has important clinical implications because we don't often explore that, like, what is that like to experience that? And that's, uh, that's what uh, an activism also potentially can, can offer is like a, a deeper understanding and exploration of what it's like to undergo those experiences that we haven't personally uh, undergone, undergone. And then even if we did live with, with chronic pain as a clinician, uh, it's likely going to be very, very different than, than what the patient's experiencing. And we can't just take our experiences and just map them onto a patient and expect that they're experiencing their bodies and the world in the same way that we are. So, um, so it, it really touches on how each individual has these very unique experiences that can, can be explored. Yeah. And those clinical frameworks that we're generally taught have very set rigid uh, parameters of what people should be experiencing. Or um, I guess we're, we're taught that the, there's a certain um, time frame for certain uh, interventions and how they should be or shouldn't be used. And this is helpful to, again, look at the uniqueness of each individual and, and their lived experience and maybe encourages us to ask questions of what it's like rather than um, have that, uh, I guess, paternalistic approach to their care. Exactly. Yep. Sabrina and Peter, this has been insightful. Um, inspired now to look at my niche and see what I can carve within it <laughs> and also it gives me a deeper sense of appreciation of, of that first person perspective for for and I'm sure clinicians would would also see that with with this approach and for those who are interested in reading and hearing more from each of you 
where can we find you? Sabrina first. Um, I think the easiest way is to go to my homepage. Maybe we can link it there um, because normally everything is on there. I try to write, give brief uh, descriptions of the different projects I've been working on because I know it's sometimes also just to go all through these papers is quite uh, difficult. Though otherwise, it's um, always easy, approachable via Twitter. Same for me. I have a like a website that I probably should update. It's been a little while. Um, so thanks for the prompt. Um, I'm on Twitter sometimes too. I, I come come and go. Sometimes I'll be on there a bunch and then I'll disappear for a couple months. But I think it's just my name, like Peter underscore Stillwell, one L and two L's. Um, yeah. And yeah. happy if people want to reach out to me and send me an email through, through my website or send me a DM on Twitter. Yeah. I'm always happy to engage with people. And Sabrina, it's it's your surname, Koenigs.de, just to clarify, and I'll have it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and via Twitter, it's not, there's not many people with my name. So normally, if you <laughs> if you just Google my name, I'm very easy to find. <laughs> awesome. Thank you both for, for sharing a lot of insights. And I'm very keen to see where this work takes each of you and, and how it can progress our field for not only our, benef our benefit, the benefit of researchers, and also the benefit of patients. So thank you both. Awesome. Thank, thank you very you. much for having us. Yeah.